John chapter 17, if you'd open your Bibles there. And as always, those listening by radio love to hear it when we give them our greetings. There's 300 stations tuning in across America. Would you tell them hello? There was a cartoon that was a commentary on our crazy world that simply said, The rat race is over and the rats won. I'm going to read you a newspaper article. I want you to listen carefully. It's from an editorial commentary. And at the end, I'll tell you a a little bit more about it. I'll explain it. But it says, The world is too big for us. Too much going on. Too many crimes. Too much violence. Try as you will. You get behind in the race. It's an incessant strain to keep the pace. You still lose ground. Science empties its discoveries on you so fast that you stagger beneath them in hopeless bewilderment. And the political world is news seen so rapidly you're out of breath trying to keep pace with who's in and who's out. Everything is high pressure. Human nature can't endure it much more. What's interesting about the article is when it was written... June 16, 1833. Almost 170 years ago, somebody wrote in the newspaper, human nature can't endure it much more. Now, we laugh at that today. Back then, it was a real issue. Listen to the Boston Globe headlines. November 13, 1857, it says, Energy Crisis Looms, the subheading. The world may go dark since whale blubber is so scarce. (laughs) Now, those are headlines that made some people into isolationists. Some people reading those headlines decided this world is big and bad and I'm going to go somewhere to get away from the dependency on whale blubber. Others turned not into isolationists, but into integrationists. They rose to the challenge, you might say. They were problem solvers, and they developed new forms of fuel. Now, we read headlines today that are ominous to us. Here's a sampling taken from newspapers all over the world on September 11th. A day of terror in big, bold letters. America under attack. We're at war, said one newspaper. Acts of mass murder. Nightmare. Oh, my God, read one newspaper. And then finally, unthinkable. And since then, there have been other headlines, such as more attacks planned. Network of terror. Mideast conflict threatens world security and axis of evil. Events in our world today are legitimately to be concerned about. I think that they're of epic, if not biblical, proportions. 
I think any normal assessment of our world, we would have to realize that our world is at a crossroads. A very interesting crossroads. Because one historian wrote that the average age of world civilizations, the great world civilizations, is a duration of around 200 years. The historian writes, almost without exception, such civilizations pass through the same sequence. Here's the sequence. From bondage to spiritual faith. From spiritual faith to great courage. From great courage to liberty. From liberty to abundance. From abundance to leisure. From leisure to selfishness. From selfishness to complacency. From complacency to apathy. From apathy to dependence. From dependence to weakness. And from weakness back to bondage. Events in our world are going to make us either into isolationists or integrationists. They're going to make us either head for the monastery in our own style, whatever that would be, hide, or going to turn us into missionaries. We're going to do something about it. And this is what you ought to do about it. Let's go to the prayer of Jesus, the last prayer to his Father in John chapter 17. We start at the 11th verse. Now I, Jesus said, am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I have come to, I come to you, Holy Father, keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you gave me I have kept. And none of them is lost except the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled." But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. There's four things I want to consider tonight. Number one, where we're at. Our position in the world is described by Jesus basically as in the world, but not of the world. He uses that phrase a couple of times. I am no longer in the world. I am coming to you, Holy Father. But they are in the world. And then he says also, and the world hates them. Now what does all that mean? We're in the world, but not of the world. Here we are, but the world hates us. And what does Paul mean when he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed? What does John mean when he says, don't love the world, And don't love the things that are in the world, because all of that is not of the Father. So what does he mean by that? Don't love the earth? Don't love people in the world? What does it mean exactly? And Jesus uses this term world, even here, in a few different ways. First of all, there is the environment, the physical world, the earth, the trees, the flowers. Acts 17 says, God who made the world and everything in it. 
Now, when John says, don't love the world, he doesn't mean you ought to hate trees. I hate that flower with a passion. Why? Because the Bible says, love not the world. No, I don't think so. Because Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. In fact, I think once you become a child of God, you appreciate this world, this environment, and its beauty more than any other time because you know the author, you know the creator. You have a better appreciation. I don't know how an unbelieving scientist does it. Looking at a sunset or the marbles of creation saying, look at this beautiful accident. The Bible also uses the term world in in another sense, in a human sense. Human beings comprise the world of mankind. Now, is that what John meant when he says, don't love the world? You're not of the world, Jesus said. No, certainly not, because the Bible says God so loved the world. And Jesus commanded us, love your neighbor as yourself. So we ought to love the physical world, the environment. We ought to love the human world, people that are in it. But we should never let the love for the environment or for people diminish our love for God. And sometimes I think we get a little bit out of balance in putting so much stock in the environment, sometimes even too much stock in people over loving God himself. St. Augustine wrote, To love the world and fail to love God would be like a bride who, being given a ring by the bridegroom, loves the ring more than the bridegroom. Of course, she should love what the bridegroom gave her, but to love the ring and despise him who gave it is to reject the very meaning of the ring as a token of his love. Then there is a third sense that Jesus employs even in this text tonight. You're in the world, you're in the human world, you're in the physical world, but you're not of the world. And this now speaks of the ethical world system. The word cosmos means the ordered arrangement of things, the ordered system of things. Could be activities, ideas, and people all arranged together. We talk about the wide world of sports or the world of music. These are people who are involved in or who love and who follow sports or music. The ideas, the scores, they're in that world, that system. We are in the physical world, we are in the human world, but we are not of the world system. Why? Because Second Corinthians tells us Satan is the god of this world who has blinded the minds of those who believe not. So the world in this sense speaks of the ordered system or the arranged system of ideas, of activities that are under the control of Satan. They're opposed to God. Now much in this system called the world is religious and intellectual and sophisticated and at the same time anti-God, anti-Christ, And they don't really like you either because you stand for Jesus Christ. So we're in the physical world and we're part of the human world and we're even surrounded by the world ethical system, but we're not led by that system. We're not conformed to that system and we don't love that system. We don't love the philosophies, the values, the standards of that system. 
Jesus uses himself as an example in these verses. He says, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus came to the earth from heaven. He's going right back to heaven. So this is a stopping point. This world is not his home. He came here for a purpose and he is leaving. So it is with us. This world really is not our home. It's a stopping point. In fact, we would be seen something like a scuba diver. It's not our element. We have to have an apparatus just to survive in that environment. Or like a space guy up in space with his spacesuit. You need a special apparatus because that is not your element. And this is why Christians love to sing about and preach about and read about and talk about heaven so much. Because we realize, ah, that's home. This is not my home. This is a world system that people are thinking thoughts that are alienated from biblical theology. They, they don't love God, by and large. They have a standard and a set of values and a system that is hostile to God. I'm not of that. I'm not conformed to that. I don't belong here. We're in it, but we're not of it. Unless we realize that, we're not going to survive. There's an old Norwegian catechism that pictures God sending mankind to the island colony called the earth. And just before God dispatches man to the earth, he gives him a warning and he says, the greatest danger is that you may love this island too much. You might fall in love with it and not care to return here to the kingdom. He said, love the world because it is my possession Don't love the world because it is your home, for it is not your home. Your home is here with me in the palace. It's a great picture, isn't it? This is just an island. This is a stopping off place. And the greatest danger is that you might fall in love with that island and forget where your home is. Now, in verse 14, Jesus mentions there's an occupational hazard of being in the world and not of the world of being a follower of Christ. He says that Jesus said, I've given them your word. The world has hated them because they are not of the world. Now that's the problem. That's the occupational hazard. As long as you don't share their values, don't share their philosophies, as long as you are different in what they value, then they will regard you as being bigoted, narrow-minded, intolerant. How dare you? You're not of them. You could be an atheist. Be all right. You could be an agnostic. That's cool. You could drink. You could even be sexually promiscuous. That's okay. Everybody does it. We've even had a president do it. You could even be mildly religious, generically spiritual. But the moment you stand up and say, I love the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we get to heaven. You are not liked. You are shunned. You have received the word of truth and the world will hate you because you are not of the world. And the reason why that happens is because people in the world system are earthbound. This is it. This is their hope. It doesn't last beyond this earth. So it's like a person having one orange. You've got the whole fruit market. They've got this one little orange and they're going to suck every last drop of pleasure out of it. That's all they got. That's all they know. After this world, it's over. 
So they don't figure you out when you don't share their value system. So that's your position. You're like a boat on the water. You're in the water, but you're not of the water. The problem is, is when your boat starts taking on too much water, you'll start to drown. You're in the world. You're not of the world. Look at verse 15 now. We move from the position that we're in to Jesus' prayer of preservation for his disciples. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world. Hmm. But that you should keep them from the evil one. Please notice that. Jesus does not pray a prayer of escapism for them. Jesus doesn't say, Lord, help these disciples find a nice cozy cave where they can store food and store weapons and remove themselves from all the evils and all the cooties that are in the world. No, he says, I don't pray that you take them out of the world, but while they're in it, staying in it but not of it, that they would be kept from the influence of the evil one. There was a time in history called the monastic movement where people said, in order to really be spiritual, I must remove myself from the contamination of daily life. I must go out and contemplate God in a monastery. It was a period of detachment. Instead of infiltration, it was isolation. Some of the stories I read is that people moved out to the fields and even grazed like cattle, thinking that was spiritual. One person had a reputation of being holy because he never changed his clothes and never bathed. Ooh, really spiritual. In the 5th century A.D., a notorious recluse by the name of Simeon Stylites lived atop of a 60-foot pillar for 30 years in isolation, but as sort of a, an object of show. Look, I'm closer to God. I'm raised off of this earth. I'm not influenced like the common people are. This, this influenced lots of other people. One of them was a Frenchman named Anatole who said, I'm going to do that. Rather than getting a pillar... He took a chair and put it on his dining room table and put a white robe on his body and sat there determined to live his life in holy contemplation. The only problem is his family ridiculed him to no end. What are you doing up on the kitchen table, Dad? I'm contemplating God. Get down, it's dinner time. Soon he wrote. He said, I soon perceived it is a very difficult thing to be a saint while living with your own family. Now I see why Jerome and Simeon went out to the desert. But you know where we need saints, where we need God's people? Not on top of poles, but in factories, in offices, as police officers, infiltrating our world. Jesus insisted that we live our Christian life in the midst of the world, for he said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Besides that, you can do all of those things that seem very spiritual on the outward, like self-denial. You can do all of those things and still be worldly. Because you know what the problem is? You. Me. We take us wherever we go. We can't get rid of us. Wherever you go, there you are. And all the problems go with you. I read some stories of monks who lived in monasteries and had problems with lust. And whenever they had a problem with lust, even though they're in the middle of nowhere, 
the thoughts would bombard them. They couldn't get rid of them. So they would throw themselves in rose bushes to distract them from those lustful thoughts. Of course, you could always tell who's been lusting that day, couldn't you? You see a guy all beat up, scraped up. Now, I know what you've been thinking, dude. We'll be praying for you. In verse 15, Jesus says, I pray that you keep them from the evil one. And, and look back at verse 11. I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father. Keep is the prayer. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in your name. Those whom you have given me, I have kept, and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus prays basically that they would be preserved, kept is the word, tereo, to guard carefully. I've guarded them. I stood guard on their behalf. Father, stand guard for these disciples. Your being kept as a Christian is part of the character of God much more than it is your character. Now unto him who is able to keep you from falling and present you faultless before his throne with exceeding joy, Jude writes. Now, if Jesus Christ, while he was limited in his incarnation, having a physical body on the earth, could keep his disciples while he was alive, how much more being glorified with the Father... Can they keep the disciples even now? I've kept them. Now, Lord, Father, you keep them. Well, what about Judas? Whatever happened to him? Why wasn't he kept? Why did he fall? You're talking about being kept, Jesus keeping them, keep them, Father. Why did Judas not get kept? Well, you have to want to be kept. It's not automatic. You have to cooperate with God. You don't just veg out in the Spirit. You have to cooperate with it. Judas never was one of Jesus Christ's own. In fact, when you look at verse 12, at the very end, he says, I have kept them and none of them is lost except the son of perdition that the Scripture might be Fulfilled. Talk about an infamous name. Judas is it. You think of Judas, you think of infamy, betrayal, deceit, disloyalty. You ever seen a Christian parent name his son Judas? No one would. It's a beautiful name. It means praise, Judah, to praise God. But nobody will call their kid, this is my kid, son of perdition, Judas. Because of what has happened to this man. Now the word perdition means destruction, ruin, loss. Waste would be a good term. That's a good description of what happened to Judas. His life was a waste. Now remember, he was the guy that accused Mary of Bethany for wasting the precious ointment that could have been sold and pouring it out on Jesus' feet. And yet he wasted his entire life. And Judas is a warning to so-called Christians. It shows us how close we can come to the truth 
and still be lost. Judas heard the best preaching, the best sermons, saw the greatest miracles one-on-one with Jesus Christ. But he died and went to hell, the Bible tells us. You can come so close and yet remain so far. At the end of Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes, Then I saw that there is a way to hell even from the gates of heaven. Now let's look at how to counteract that. Look at verse 16. This is the preparation now. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. There is the secret of being in the world and not of it to be sanctified. Now talk about a biblical word. If anything has a stained glass ring to it, it's the word sanctify. It means to be set apart. To be dedicated, to be consecrated. Hagias. Hagiazo. It was used in a variety of ways. We think of it in a biblical way. It could be used in a physical sense. A husband is sanctified to his wife. I did a wedding a few hours ago. And they said those vows. That they would take one to another and betroth their love to each other in a very unique fashion keeping only to themselves as long as they both shall live. They are sanctified to one another in a physical sense. It's restricted just to each other. Then there was sanctification in a business sense. When a person worked for a company, he was sanctified to work only for that company and not work on the side. Athletes were sanctified to their team. They only played for that team. They only did a certain sport. They were restricted from certain kinds of activities. Then there was a military sense. A soldier was sanctified, dedicated, consecrated to being just a soldier and only fighting for his country, not two or three, but just one. So in the biblical sense, to be sanctified here means to be separate from sin, separate from the worldly system, and devoted wholly to God. That's how you can be in the world, surrounded by the worldly system with its philosophies, its thinking, its values, and not be of it by being in it, dedicated wholly to the Lord. Now all Christians, every Christian, is sanctified in position, but not necessarily in practice. As Paul writes to the Corinthians, and you remember the Corinthians? Four-way split in the church, suing one another, some drunk at the communion table, one family had incest involved in it. Paul writes that church, and he opens up his letter to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints, and it was to all of the Corinthians. You know why I did that? Because we are all sanctified by position. We receive salvation. Salvation, we don't earn it. We receive it. It comes by reception. Sanctification, however, comes by cooperation. You don't just sit, as we said, and veg out and automatically grow as a Christian. You've got to cooperate with God. 2 Corinthians 7, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates the body and the spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, how do we do that? What is the means by which we are sanctified? We just read it. 
Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. comes by the scriptures, the word of God. We read it. We apply it to our lives. Why? Because we're in a world that is both deceived and deceiving. And so the only way to survive a world that is so deceptive is by clinging to the truth. And God's word is the truth. Not a truth. Not one of many truths. The truth. It tells you the truth about God. You the truth about you. You the truth about sin. You the truth about salvation. It gives you the truth. It is your survival kit. It is your scuba tank. It is your spacesuit. It is for your survival. David expressed the idea in Psalm 119 when he said, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. Every time we are confronted with the truth of the Scripture, God would use that opportunity to make us a little holier than we were before we read it. It doesn't always happen. Because as I said, it's not automatic. But that's how God wants it to work. So that we read it, we look at it, we apply it to our hearts, we're confronted. We don't always like what we read, do we? We don't always like what we hear. Sometimes we hear something or read something in the Bible that we think, I don't want to read that, I'm closing it, I'm walking out. But the Bible rebukes us. The Bible confronts us as well as encourages and consoles us. And we grow. It helps us stay afloat. It helps us stay in the midst of the world, not taking on too much water. Mark Twain once said, It's not the things I don't understand in the Bible that bother me. It's all the things I do understand. But we need to pay heed to them. We need to let the Bible cut like a knife. It prepares us. I love to see a well-used Bible. Charles Spurgeon once said, A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to somebody who's not. You look at their Bible and you think, That puppy's been read. That baby's been used. That thing's been opened, meditated on. Now, that doesn't mean you should go home after you get your new Bible and just go... (laughs) So it looks really good, you know. No, all you got to do is read it. All you got to do is love it. Get into it. Every single day. Every day. One week without the Bible makes one week. One W-E-E-K without the Bible makes one us W-E-A-K, week. Read it every day. It'll sanctify you. You'll grow. It'll confront you. It will encourage you. Now we come to what I would call the graduating step of this. We have looked at our position. We're in the world, but we're not of the world. We're to love the people, we're to love the environment, but not love the system or be conformed to it. Jesus prayed for preservation. That we wouldn't isolate ourselves, that we wouldn't leave the world, but that we would be kept from the evil one because the world hates us. He talked about our preparation. We get sanctified. We get dedicated, completely consecrated to God while in the world. That's our survival. Now look at verse 18 and we'll close with that. As you sent me into the world... I also have sent them into the world. 
Let that sink in. Father, here I am. I came from heaven. I obeyed you. You sent me on a mission. I'm here. I'm about to go to the cross. Now, as you sent me into the world, I'm sending them into the world. That's why I call it the graduating step. That's the goal. The goal isn't education. The goal isn't inspiration. The goal is permeation, infiltration. Go, Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So what will our response be in the midst of this world that doesn't love God, that doesn't love us who love God, that has this system of values and philosophies and thinking that are bombarding us day in and day out? Well, you know, Christians have had a variety of different responses to that. One is to isolate ourselves. That's the monastic response. Find a monastery. Get away from the world. Get away from the cooties. Get away from the defilement. Don't be around them worldly folks anymore. How often have you even thought, oh man, it's hard to be a Christian in this world. It's hard to live the Christian life. Wouldn't it be great just to have a Christian village somewhere? with Christian stores, Christian store owners, Christian policemen, Christian doctors, Christian nurses. You just described heaven. That's the utopia called heaven. Well, if I only worked around Christian people. Well, it's all right. I mean, I do it, and it's, it's okay. It's not all that it's cracked up to be, believe me. <laughs> I'll tell you what's better than that. We are His workmanship, the Bible says. We are God's art on display. When an artist paints a picture, he doesn't want to put it in a closet. He wants people to see it. I've created this work of art. Show it off. Another response people might have is to insulate. Oh yes, they're in the world, but they want to be insulated from the problems and the pain. Get away from it. Close my eyes to it. By the way, there was a group in the New Testament who were very separate. In fact, their name means separated ones. They were called the Pharisees. They walked down the streets of Jerusalem holding their robes and putting their hands over their faces so they wouldn't even see the world. That's how they lived their lives. They weren't any good as far as evangelism was concerned. All they did is nitpick Jesus because he was a friend of tax collectors and sinners trying to reach out to them. And I find some Christians can be like that, very insulated. They talk about being separated to the point where they just walk around with blinders all day long, don't preach the gospel to anybody. A third response is to vegetate. This is the apathetic person. This is the person who's just burned out on all the bad news they hear all day long streaming from the news wires and in the newspapers. And they reach a point where, quite honestly, they just say, so what? They have become so lukewarm that they've lost their passion for lost souls. So they just vegetate on their way to heaven. The highest form of selfishness is to be content to go to heaven alone. There is a fourth response. It is even worse. It is to imitate the world. Oh, we've got to be like the world, otherwise they're not going to buy our, our package. Got to be all things to all men. You want a joint, brother? 
No, you can be in the world and love the world, but not be of its system. Be different enough so people go, well, you're different than I am. What do you got? You don't do what I do, but you have, you have a joy. You have a, a peace. You have something that I, I need. The best response is what Jesus said in verse 18, is to permeate the world. That is, to be set apart from the world values, but to be sent into the world to rescue lost souls. Remember, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, what good is it? So the salt needs to get out of the salt shaker. You're the light of the world, but the light needs to come out from under a bushel. So to sum it up, our place in the world is to have contact without contamination. Contact without contamination. Now the world needs you. The world needs your message. They don't think they do. They they say, I don't like you Christians. You're narrow-minded. You're bigoted. You're the problem. Oh, they need you. Jesus said, you're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. They need you to stay, to keep off the putrefaction. To bring light into it. To illuminate the path. They need you. But you know it's also true? That you need the world. You need the world. You need contact with the world. Let me give you an illustration. Years ago, when the cod business on the East Coast was, was at its peak, New England cod was big everywhere, and they couldn't keep up the orders, they decided to send the fish across the country to its destination frozen. The only problem is, when they thawed it out and ate the fish, it lost its flavor. So they thought, well, now what do we do? We don't want to freeze it and send it. So they shipped the fish in containers of seawater, which was quite costly, and still... There was a flavor loss, and the fish was mushy, kind of flabby. They came up with an interesting solution. They sent the fish, numbers of them, in tanks with its natural enemy in the tank, the catfish. So that from the East Coast, all the way from the time it left the East Coast and reached its destination, that cod was swimming, trying to keep away from the catfish the entire time, which kept it firm. And it was fresh and flavorful. I meet frozen Christians from time to time. Cold, austere, critical. They write notes and emails of things they don't like about everything. They're flavorless. Then there are those who are just in their own little tanks, their little Christian environments. Everything's a little Christian here and Christian that and Christian this and no cooties of the world. You need the predator, friends. You need something to keep you with an edge. You need the world. To be in it, but to not be of it. So you need exposure to the Word. And you need exposure to the world. Because if you're in the world, but you're not in the Word, you're going to become like the world. But if you're in the Word all day long, but you're not in the world... You're going to be fat and sassy. And you know how we might end up? We could end up with this unfortunate end, a church that was written about in a little Midwestern town newspaper. After a storm, the article read, We are pleased to announce that the cyclone which blew away the church last Friday did no real damage to the town.
Church is gone. Town's fine. No, no. If you're doing your job, the world needs you. Heavenly Father, here we are in the world. World of humans, a physical world, an environment that we love, but also surrounded by a system of ideologies, philosophies, beliefs, and values that are in direct opposition to you and to everything you stand for. We're to be in it, not of it. We're not to be isolated from it, but to make a difference in it. We're not to imitate the world. We're to permeate the world with salt and light and make a difference and make people thirsty. And sometimes we're going to turn on the light and their eyes have grown so accustomed to the darkness of sin that it's going to hurt when the light comes on. Help us, Lord, to do it gently, with love, with the explanations of a loving Savior, reaching out. But, Lord, with enough difference, with enough flavor that by our very difference we become attractive. Lord, I pray that we would not get out of balance in one direction or another. I pray, Father, that we would be in the Word, but in the world, making a difference in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's all stand. Let's all stand.